Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Corinthians 1.10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the good word you've given. We thank you for opening our eyes to the truth of the gospel. I pray that we would now receive from you. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. How do we practice unity? Does unity mean... More people being like me, or in your case, like you. Have you ever just asked yourself, if everyone in the church was like me, would I want to go to this church? Or if everyone was like me, would we be more united? Would we be closer to each other? This is one of the issues that Paul addresses in the beginning of his letter to the church at Corinth. Remember that one of the themes, and I would say the primary theme of this letter, is how people seek to establish their own standards, their own righteousness, instead of finding their righteousness, instead of finding their place in Christ. And one of the ways people were doing this that Paul addresses is they were dividing into factions. Now, no, it's not like most of us, we can identify somebody else when they have a faction. We know how to spot other people's factions. Why? Because they're always together. They're always talking about the same person, group, or idea. So when, we're, when you're on the outside, you know what that looks like. When you're on the inside, it's not a faction, it's just the truth, right? This is just common knowledge to all intelligent people, to all godly people. This is what we do, right? Well, that's what we think. But let's look further. 
When we hear about unity, usually what our mind goes is being nice. And especially unity is being nice outwardly while inwardly you are a bit disgruntled or maybe more than a bit disgruntled. But that's not the unity of Scripture. In the New Testament, unity means God's people joined in the life of Christ pursuing God's kingdom together. I'll say that again. God's people joined in the life of Christ pursuing God's kingdom together. And unity is not, it does not come by forcing everyone to think like me. How do we, now, now again, we don't think of ourselves as forcing. We think of ourselves as explaining. And if they don't get it with this particular, you know, at, at this voice level, if I explain a bit louder, they will get it because that works. If I say it in all caps, they hear. Right? Of course not. But so, so, so Paul, after his introduction, he, he just he starts right in on verse 10. He jumps into exhortation mode, warning the people that they are wrongly divided. And the picture he uses is of a body whose limbs are torn away. He said in verse 10, that you, there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So, and, and so, so this talk of divisions in the body, he will come back to this. And actually, throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, throughout this letter, he will return over and over to the themes that he brings up in these first few chapters. But the Greek word, the Greek words used in re reference to this division is one that he takes from the political realm. When you, in the political realm, when you would have various factions in the polis, in the city, that were demanding different things from the city leaders. Well, just use your imagination. What happens when you have varying groups that are all wanting different things in the middle of the city and they're trying to get the leaders to hear them and to do what they want? We have turmoil. You have division. And you have nothing good being done. Now, of course, we being 21st century Americans, we would really have to stretch and use our imagination to picture what this looks like in the actual political realm, right? We don't know what, well, maybe a little bit more than we're comfortable with. But everyone values his own side. We all like what we like. So just take it in that realm. Don't let your mind stay in the political realm, but just briefly. If that's, if everyone wanted the same thing, or if, let's say, just if the majority wanted the same thing, 
that is, wanted what you particularly think they should, would there be anyone who is left out? Would there be anyone who's on the outside who's missing something? See, double-mindedness not only affects individuals. James talks about that in James chapter 1. But double-mindedness also affects the city. And it affects the church. The first division in Corinth, and there are many other divisions. We'll talk about those later in the letter. But this division is based on loyalty to men. Verses 11 and 12. By the way, I just want to mention that, that these people in Chloe's household had some courage. Because Paul actually names them. He said, by the way, it's told to me by some in Chloe's household, and he goes on to explain, I would, uh, if I were Paul, I probably would have asked a few prayers for Chloe's household after, after the, it was just said to them, said to everyone else, these are the people who told. But... That some are loyal to Peter, to Apollos, or to Paul himself. And he specifically says that he refers to baptism in verse 13. He said, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized into the name of Paul? Then he says, I thank my God I was not, I did not baptize many of you. That I baptized Crispus, Gaius, the household of Stephanus. And you may wonder, why does he bring up baptism here? Well, for the ancient Jews, and apparently many of the early Christians, to be baptized by someone, like John the Baptist, for instance, was to become that person's follower. So if, you, if someone baptized you, then... You may not say, I was baptized in, in this person's name, but you automatically ascribe a lot of loyalty to that person. This person is one who, who you owe something. So you would listen to them. Paul expresses this idea later on in 1 Corinthians 10, where he, he speaks about Israel being, quote, baptized unto Moses. It doesn't mean that Israel treated Moses as their God. But they followed <clears throat> excuse me, Moses. They, they were led by Moses out of Egypt. So Israel was loyal to Moses. Were there people, whether they were actually baptized by Paul or by Apollos, and, and Peter, to our knowledge, was not in Corinth, but still many were attributing their loyalty to Peter. And this church had loyalty to different men, and probably some of this was due to the respective emphases of each leader. We don't know exactly what those were, at least not from the context here, but we can read in other places and see that it's very likely that those beliefs, those practices, they could have been theological. And I don't mean overt differences, but just you know, a, a different, again, an emphasis might be different with one than another. Or maybe the rhetorical style of one is different than another. Again, you know, some people 
they just have a, 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 a style of language and of rhetoric that we like, right? I mean, ha have any of you, now please don't answer this question, okay? But have any of you ever said, I really like this particular preacher, and now you wouldn't say it here, not about our preachers, certainly not, but about someone, you know, if you were at a previous church at some time, have you ever thought, I really like hearing this person, or maybe you listen to someone because I just like the way that they sound. They appeal to me. That's not you. That was going on in first century Christianity. But following personalities leads quickly to dissension. It's hard on the people. It's also hard on those who were preaching themselves. Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 1. He says that while he was sidelined, while he was imprisoned, uh, there were others who were trying to take his place. And some of them weren't doing it with good motives. He says some preach Christ in need of envy and strife. What? They were like, Paul can't be here. Yes! I get to do the preaching. Now, they have to listen to me. So they were, they were envious, and they were preaching, and it wasn't from a good motive. But, but if you read on in Philippians, you will see what Paul said. He said, you know what? I don't care. They may not have a good attitude, but as long as the cross of Christ is preached, I'm happy. That's what we call humility. And it's not easy. If you were a Jewish convert in the church at Corinth, you probably appreciated the Apostle Peter's teaching. Because Peter, himself being a Jew, had a greater, but very likely from what we see in the book of Acts and other places, and then in Galatians chapter 2, he had a strong appreciation for the Old Covenant law. He was not a Judaizer. But that was likely a stronger emphasis with him on the ethical necessity in some areas. If you were a cosmopolitan Greek Christian, you might have delighted in Apollos' rhetorical skills. Because Paul talks about what a great speaker Apollos was. Or if you were skittish, about the Old Covenant law, you might appreciate Paul more because he regularly emphasized our freedom in Christ. That we are not bound to the law. And of course we know that Paul himself was accused of negating the law, which he himself did not negate the moral law. But then for many, they, they were struggling at the time. You know, what's the difference between the moral law and the civil law and the ceremonial law? How do we know this? Again, some things never go away. People were dividing over things like this. Now, it is interesting also in the original language where he says that, you know, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, or I am of Christ, There. That's actually in Greek somewhat set aside. That, that, that's a little, the, the I'm of Christ is a little bit different. And, and one way 
to view that is that many of the people who were followers of Peter or of Paul or of Apollos, they were all claiming, I am following this person who is the closest representative of Christ. It's, you know, that, that, that same thing, and I've told you before and I, that I've some, I'd heard it from, uh, I believe, Doug Wilson years ago. He said, Two, two men are talking. One says, you know, we both follow God, I, and, you know, you in your way and I in His. That's how Paul is using language here. The people are saying, you know, I'm of Christ. It's like, I'm, I'm following Paul's teaching, which is most in line with Christ. Or I'm following Peter's teaching, which, of course, is the Christian way, the most Christian way. Can I make a confession that we're just going to keep between us here, just me and you and a few of our, our best friends here in the congregation this morning? This was not an easy sermon to prepare for because it worked me over a little bit this week in thinking about this. Because this is so relevant to where we are. The language of verse 13 is clear. He asked the question, is Christ divided? Is God's promised Savior a faction monger? Did He come to cut His bride in pieces? And that's exactly what Paul says they were doing. They were separating into cliques. They were dividing based on various preferences. So Paul then introduces two ways of combating this disunity. So there's two things he introduces to combat the, the, this particular dissension. Number one, he emphasizes their new identity in Christ. He emphasizes their new identity in Christ. And that emphasis in their identity is particularly in baptism. So their, their new identity comes in baptism. He, he says, again, in verse 14... I thank God that I baptized none of you, lest anyone should say I baptized in my own name. He lays part of the problem at their emphasis on loyalty to the one baptized. Again, something else. Baptism that has yielded more than its share of division. The emphasis of Scripture overwhelmingly is not on how you were baptized. It's not by whom you were baptized. It's not at the age at which you were baptized. The emphasis of Scripture is, were you baptized? Because those who are in the family of God are those who are baptized. That is the distinction. 
that's presented. Paul emphasizes that baptism is about the one into whose name you were baptized, not the one performing the action. Baptism certainly establishes loyalty. But it's loyalty to Christ, not to a man. And Paul, even though some of the people here at this church, their, their loyalty was to him. Now, what would our tendency be if we knew that there, was, that there were people in an organization who were most loyal to us, who would do almost anything we said, it would be natural for us to give a little bit of preference, just a tip of the hat, to them. You catch none of that here. He tells all of them, I'm glad I didn't baptize you. I just baptized a few of you. Because that's not my primary calling. Now some mistake his words in verse 17 where he says, Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel as minimizing the importance of baptism. But, but that's not what he's saying either. He's not saying baptism does not matter. He's saying, God did not send me to baptize you into a faction. He didn't send me to establish different little subgroups in the church. But into Christ. So the first thing is that he emphasizes our new identity. And that identity comes in baptism. But the second way Paul combats disunity is to emphasize the work of Christ in the gospel. He says, again, verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Again, this is, this is going back to the fact that some were known for their excellent elocution they knew how to use their words well. And some better than others. I remember years ago, the advice of one particular pastor to me, he said, always strive to improve your preaching while always remembering that there are better preachers than you. There will always be better preachers than you. Don't be disturbed by that. It's true. And Paul is saying here that my calling, that his calling as an apostle, is not the perfection of a gift not something that people could grow to admire more. Preaching the gospel is not a matter of presenting something just in the right way that people will be moved in their emotions by what you are saying and they will come to God. It doesn't work that way. It's not about how well and how perfectly you can say the right words. If you rely on evangelism 
which is something the church is called to be a part of. But if you trust in your ability to perfectly present the message of the gospel, you will be very discouraged. Now some people, some people can, can take that to the other extreme and say, you know what, I can't do it perfectly, so I'm not going to do it. That's wrong. The good news is that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's not the power of your rhetoric to salvation. So you can make known the good news of the faith, and you may stub your toe when you do it. It's all right. Because it's not your message. It's not your power. It's not your spirit. It's God's Spirit dwelling in you. That's good news. So Paul emphasizes the work of Christ in the gospel. So he, he said that he came to preach the gospel, but he doesn't want it to be with words because, or excuse me, he doesn't want it to be with only an emphasis on the right words. Our words can reveal the truth, but they can also hide the truth. In times of apostasy, we must remember that our unity is not bound in second and third level doctrines, but in a strange, but in a strange message that we call the gospel. If you can step back from all the, the years of attending church, some of you it's not been years, some, I understand that, but... If you can step back from, from all the, the accretion, all you know, we, we are accustomed, and it's a blessing, to hearing the message of Scripture. But if you step back from that, and, and a growing number of people in our country and in our world are not familiar with the faith. But we are a part of a group who worships what the world sees as a Jewish rabbi who claimed to be the Son of God, who was killed on a cross, and we believe was resurrected and returned, ascended to the Father of all. That's what we believe. Now you think about how that sounds to the wider world. I don't mean how it sounds to the person sitting next to you. I just mean to the world in general. If you walk up to someone who does not attend church, has no love for the faith, and you tell them what you believe, how, can you do that? And think about how strange that sounds to them. That's how it sounded in the first century. Someone was what? Resurrected. Not just revived. No, we're, we're talking totally new body. We're talking the ability to walk through walls and to, to disappear one place and appear somewhere. This is, the, this is the Christ that we serve. Are we willing to embrace the strangeness of this? Because if not, we just need to get there. It's a very simple message, though. Those who trust and obey Him will be restored to the Creator of the universe and made a part of His kingdom. That's the good news. Anything less than this asserts, excuse me, inserts a distraction 
from the message. So if you say the gospel is Jesus Christ, dead, died, buried, resurrected, ascended, and we serve him, and you've got to believe in pedo communion. And you've got to believe in fill in the blank. You've got to believe in sovereign grace the way I believe in sovereign grace. Nope. Sorry. It's not the way it works. Now, we believe, I believe those things. Those are good things. But the gospel is the gospel. I don't get the right to add to the gospel and say, actually, the gospel is a bunch of extra stuff. And that's part of Paul's reason for opening the letter in this way. He sees a church that is rife with division, whether it's based on loyalty to leaders and their teaching, to the quality of language, and he wants it to stop. If your loyalty is to a man, to a doctrine, to a church practice, or to an ideology that overshadows your loyalty to Christ and His work, you are bringing in confusion. I didn't say you can't have other beliefs or we should not have. Of course we do. That's the beauty of the church. We don't have to check our brains at the door. But we also don't have to bring in all of the stuff that we've piled on in addition to what Scripture teaches and say, yes, it's, what, it's Scripture and all this other stuff. If your loyalty keeps to anything else, keeps you from showing God's grace and kindness to others, you are hiding the light of Christ under a dark cloud. So what does this mean for us right now here? Trinity Reformed Church. Let me ask you this question. Where does your loyalty lie? To whom do you give your attention? We all have people that we read, that we listen to. We all attend a church that emphasizes certain things, as churches must. Doctrine is a good thing. It's a gift. But what is it that drives you to not only tell others what you believe, but tries to help others to come to your belief and that makes you feel like that, that it's, it's part of your mission to bring them to where you are? What are the things that, I'm not saying you do that, but what might motivate you to do that? What personality, what writer, what podcaster forms you? Is your commitment to this person or to this teaching driving you to love Christians outside our congregation or our denomination, or does it drive you away? Does it make you, do, do what you listen to, do what, does what you take in make you more insular, make you more defensive, make you criticize other people? Does it sharpen your ability to condemn what 95% of the rest of the church believes? 
Now, I'm not saying the, the application this morning is not to liberalize and say nothing matters but Jesus. So just forget everything else. No. I, hold to your beliefs by all means. But don't turn your beliefs into the only way to Christ. I still remember years ago I, I overheard one pastor friend, several, were, several of us were evangelicals, and they were talking about a conservative, another conservative uh, confessional Protestant one pastor leaned over and said, "You got to be care- you got to just you got to be careful around him. He's a Lutheran. And this guy's he was conservative. Didn't he hated abortion? You know all this other stuff. And he's Lutheran. Now look, I'm not saying go down that road, but you don't have to speak in hushed tones." Like it's a scary thing. So, the, so, so two applications I'll give you this morning. Number one, we should strive to get out of our own echo chamber. God has blessed our church here, and we are thankful. And as He has blessed us and continues to bless us, there are more people from different backgrounds who have different ideas. We have to look out for only congregating around those who hold to exactly the same things I hold to in at least 97.9% of what I believe or else they're, on the, they're, they're actually down the slippery slope. So embrace things not there. Enjoy, you know, don't, don't just surround yourself by those people who say everything that you do. It's okay to have conversation that's not just heated agreement. The second application is to not only get out of your echo chamber, but number two, go out of your way to talk to someone who's different from you. Someone who has a different background. Someone who is, does not have your same personality type. Do, are you, do you seek to understand and to communicate with those who are different from you. And this could be as simple as if you sit on one side of the church, go make sure you talk to somebody on the other side of the church. That's a start. We can't apply this further than just the church. But that's a start. If you're a, if you're a non-engineer thinking person for the seven of us here who are, talk to someone else. If you are an engineer, talk to one of the seven people who are not. But even the the people, there are people who are outside our church who do not hold your exact convictions on everything. So 
give yourself to listening. And so part of what Paul calls us to is that we pursue, and he uses this in, in other places as well. He said that you be jo perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. Like-mindedness is not everyone conforming to me. Like-mindedness is striving to listen to where my brother or my sister is, to listen to them and try to understand what they are saying. We can never afford to become people of faction, elevating our preferred principles, practices, and personalities above the good news of the death and resurrection of Christ. Jesus says in John 17 that God's people, part of His prayer is that God's people would shine to the point, would love one another to the point that the outside world is astounded. We have a ways to go, but we'll get there. In conclusion, the cross kills fleshly division. It frees us from finding our protection in people and opens us up to the wild and wonderful world of God's kingdom. In God's kingdom, for every straight-laced Nicodemus-type character, you find more like blind Bartimaeus, like Zacchaeus, like the guy who, who was demon-possessed and used to hang around at the cemetery. They're, that, they're those type of people. Imagine the stories that guy had to tell. Some of those stories, now, some of those stories would be things that we probably would not maybe be entirely comfortable with at the dinner table, especially early in his conversion. That's okay. Biblical unity does not mean everyone becoming more uniform. But people striving to understand the varying colorful perspectives of saints across times and places. Only God can bring unity. But He's given His church to the call to pursue unity. So shun the temptation to the personality-driven life and embrace the delightful and uncomfortable but great pursuit of unity. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank You for the, Your Word and for teaching us, for guiding us in wisdom. May we grow and may we receive Come more united through your gospel in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.